welcome again to Carmelite Conversations. Very excited to be with you today. Uh, let me, as I do always, greet my co-host here in studio, Francis Harry. Francis, how are you today? Hi, I'm feeling especially blessed, and I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Especially blessed. Well, that's... Uh, it's Lent. <laughs> that's right. We're actually near the end of Lent. We're uh, at the time that Francis and I are in studio. We can't imagine when anybody might actually listen to the program, but... Um, we are at the end of the last week of Lent and getting ready for entry into Holy Week, so we're excited about that. It is a blessed time for us. And today we have a, a presentation, a conversation, um, that actually goes back to the uh, Carmelite Congress that was held last year in Columbus, Ohio, and we talked about life as a pilgrimage to the center of the soul, and I gave a, a presentation on that topic. And today, Francis and I are going to have a conversation on that topic uh, regarding what I subtitle as Not a Walk Down Memory Lane. And uh, we'll introduce more of the, the uh, particulars of the program, uh, but I want to just lead off with this scripture verse. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides, abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. And I'll just say for our audience, Francis, that phrase, that verse from Scripture is the centerpiece of this entire conversation, because we have to rest in the understanding and in the true knowledge that God loves us. Everything stems from that. Our peace that is discovered in, in prayer, most especially in contemplative prayer, it is a prerequisite to effective contemplative prayer, stems from that Bible verse. So I'd like to uh, keep that in mind as we go forward with the conversation, but um, I, I'd like to do a formal opening prayer for us. Um, and this is a, um, a prayer that has been adapted from um, the famous um, communion prayer, <laughs> is what I use it for, of soul of Christ. And um, I think you'll recognize part of it, but we've adapted it and kind of made it more special f for our, this conversation. Yeah, I think in the Latin it's Animani Christi. Yes. Is, is the Latin version. Thank you. Yeah. It slipped in my mind. So. <laughs> okay, let's get recollected as we know um, that God calls us to focus on him within and let us sign ourselves in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Soul of Christ, purify us with fire, sanctify us with light. Body of Christ, heal us and save us. Blood of Christ, inebriate us with holiness. Water from the side of Christ, wash us clean of the stains of all of our sins. Crucifixion of Christ, strengthen us unto battle. O oh, our good Jesus, hear us. Please answer our prayer when we call. Have mercy on us, Lord, for we have sinned against thee. Never allow us to be separated from you again. From the malignant enemy, defend us. Deep within thy bloody wounds, hide us. At the hour of our death, call us, bid us come unto thee, that with thy saints in heaven we might praise thee, worship thee, glorify thee, adore thee, and contemplate thee throughout all eternity. Our mother of Mount Carmel, pray, pray for, for us. us. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, Francis. I appreciate that. Um, you know, when I was thinking about the imagery or the theme I wanted to start this conversation with, I kicked around a lot of ideas, and I uh, stumbled on 
an idea because I knew it would be consistent with many of our listeners, consistent in the sense that most people are aware of, The Wizard of Oz, the great movie uh, from the late 1930s. And um, as an analogy to contemplation, I thought when Dorothy enters the land of Oz, it's much like what we individually experience in the spirit of contemplation. Um, this life of black and white that we live uh, from day to day and shadows become filled then with color, the color of interior contemplation. And I thought that actually might be an interesting theme, and I explored it for a bit, and I've actually since used it in another presentation um, that I recently gave. So maybe someday we'll do a fuller explanation. I love it. it. I think it's fantastic. I had to sit and ponder that, and um, it really has been fruitful for my prayer. So uh, well, thank you. Well, <coughs> I'll, I'll just offer that the one central theme that I uh, have shared in other forums is um, the idea that every one of the individuals, the lion, the tin man, of course, uh, uh, and Dorothy herself, but uh, each of them, uh, and Scarecrow, sorry, I don't want to forget Scarecrow, <laughs> each of them actually had within them the very thing they were seeking. It was already there. They simply needed to seek it within their interior. And for Dorothy, of course, um, the great analogy of, um, you know, I'll never leave home again. And uh, she understood at the end of the film. I, I won't uh, elaborate, yeah. but there's no place like home. Yeah, yeah. yes. And home, of course, for us uh, is with Jesus, and uh, we experience Him in our interior contemplation. Um, but I wanted to draw out the significance of this idea of contemplation, and for those of us who aspire to the contemplative life, to the interior life, um, Dom Jean Baptiste Porion. Uh, from a book entitled The Prayer of Love and Silence, I think really encapsulates in one sentence the significance of the interior life. And I want you to read that for us, if you would, Francis. The contemplative life is the most profound life of all, the truest life. And as said, in a brief sentence, he really makes it clear to us the significance of the interior life of the contemplative life. It is the truest life of all. It is where we live. It is who we really are. Uh, beyond this black and white world of shadows that we live in. And so it's worth our spending some time uh, talking about what impediments there are to our entry into the interior life. And that's really what this conversation today is going to be about. In commenting on a work by St. Gregory the Great, St. Gregory's work called the Moralia, uh, where St. Gregory talks about the struggle between man's life of interiority, this contemplative life, or exteriority, the life of black and white and shadows, a Bishop Claude Dagens writes, Man was destined to live within the divine world. This was his place of origin. By giving in to sin, he personally excluded himself from this privileged place. From now on, exteriority, to which he is consigned under the form of blindness and exile, prevent him from attaining the interiority he still remembers nostalgically. In other words, holiness, light, the joy of being in his true homeland. So it sort of ties back to Dorothy's idea of returning to the homeland, and I think it's true for all of us that when we live in the interior, which is the way we were designed to live in relationship with God, um, we really do dwell within our truest um, person, our truest self, and we dwell within the homeland. In fact, St. Gregory in his own original work said, return to yourself, O man, and explore the seclusion of your heart. Live this interior life. This is the human condition, the reality we're all trying to work through as we journey through life. 
Of course, you might say when Dorothy does return home, the world returns to the black and white, and again, it's filled with shadows. And I would agree that for most of us, that's true. Um, Not to say that our life is black and white, but um, it it is not the truest expression of ourself. It certainly isn't often filled with color. But the intelligence possessed by the apparently dim-witted scarecrow, the courage of the apparently cowardly lion or the true charity of the apparently heartless tin man uh, were actually the very thing that they possessed. And Dorothy says to her Annie M about seeking her own heart's desire at the end of the film, if I ever go looking for my heart's desire again, I won't look any further than my own backyard because if it isn't there, I never really lost it to begin with. And that's true. What we seek is within us. The Lord says the kingdom of God is within you. And despite these occasional darknesses and shadows of our daily lives, we've never really lost our true homeland, which is our greatest desire. That is within us. Our pilgrimage then is to a destination where once we arrive, we will discover we never really left. Oh, certainly we may encounter the evil spirit of a witch or those flying monkeys of this interior world we inhabit, but ultimately we will discover that the real impediment to our successful navigation and arrival at our destination is our own faulty compass. Yeah, so the interior world has its own trials and its own struggles. Any of us who have worked at contemplation know clearly um, that we're going to experience those dark moments in our life, and I think they're manifested in, as you mentioned, the flying monkeys. I know. I was thinking distractions. That's flying monkeys. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. While we return to this homeland through contemplation, we've said that before, and again, relating um, a quote from Dom Jean-Baptiste Porion in his book, Prayer of Life in Silence, where he writes, the contemplative life is the most profound life, the truest of all. It is where we find who we really are and who God really is. So this is a pilgrimage to the center of the soul. I must warn you, though, there are no maps for this journey. John of the Cross tells us exactly that, by the way. He says uh, that there isn't a sort of single deliberate path. Barbara Dent, in a wonderful book entitled Darkness is My Only Friend, picked up on this very theme. I know you're familiar with the book, Francis. I'd ask you to, to share with us uh, her perspective on this idea of dispensing with, with um, na- maps uh, on our journey. She says, discarding our maps means we are being summoned to an even more radical renunciation of attachment to the manner in which our adherence to God's will is to be practiced. Now, that's really something to ponder. So an even more radical renunciation of attachment, an attachment to the way we think things ought to go. So really, this is being open to God's plan. You're walking in the mist. Yeah, again, this is right out of uh, John of the Cross or St. Teresa of Avila, where they say that the, the whole focus of the spiritual journey is to adhere ourselves to God's will. Uh, I don't like the word compliance. Sometimes people use that. It's more an embracing of God's will because it is perfect for us. Uh, and what we have to do is try to identify and dispense with anything that is inconsistent with God's will in our life. Um, I do want to share, though, that there are some means of navigation for our journey. They don't give us a map. It's uh, tools of the trade. (laughs) Yeah, tools that will help us find out where we are and occasionally when we've gotten off course. Uh, The three principal means uh, that that may be helpful, allowing us to stay on course and accelerate it. Uh, And in fact, we do want to accelerate. St. Teresa tells us this uh, 
Francis. Yes, she says, we should hereby be excited to walk faster on our road to perfection so that we may please our spouse and find him the sooner. But this should not make us weary. Rather, it should animate us to walk with fortitude over the rough passes of this life. That's from the book of her foundations, by yeah. the way. She says, why would we wait? And, you know, in fact, she says it another way. Uh, you'll remember the quote better than I will, Francis. But she says, if we, if we knew we could, you know, sort of uh, uh, complete the journey in a day, why would we take months to get there? <laughs> right. And so she's, she's telling us, you know, we ought both want to accelerate and move quickly. And so uh, we're going to identify a couple of key navigational techniques for doing that. Now, interestingly, I, I, I may be somewhat uniquely qualified for this particular task because uh, in my past in the Air Force, I actually was a navigator Fantastic. Uh, in, um, in the transport airplanes. And what's interesting that most people don't know about uh, navigation, and this is true even today, uh, major airlines flying across the country or across the ocean, they're actually off course about 90% of the time. <laughs> oh, <There's> boy. <laughs> constant sort of wavering back and forth between the, the uh, center line. Uh, and not to be concerned about it, it's just the natural cause of winds and, and the barometric pressure and so forth that tend to, to cause the airplane to deviate. But um, what we do, at least what I used to do, they don't do it anymore, is periodically take celestial fixes. Uh, to affix uh, my position, decide where uh, center line is, and then make an adjustment to get myself back there. Um, now, I, I want to say uh, up front, you know, we've had a lot of conversations, Francis, and sometimes uh, we may take a little while to get to the point. So uh, <laughs> we may have already taken too long here, but let's, let's emphasize these navigational techniques right up front. We, we want to give you the sort of end of the story right up front, um, these celestial fixes, if you will, they are the major themes of our conversation for today. Um, and friends, I'm going to let you go ahead and introduce each of the three of them. Okay, the first one is contemplating the Eucharistic heart of Jesus by resting our heads on his bosom. And of course, that uh, image should come to us as um, the uh, Last Supper where John rests his head on the bosom right. of the Lord, something we're anticipating, of right. course, And I'm week. thinking of adoration. Yes, uh, so. exactly right. Okay. The second one, making our journey at night through no nocturnal or vigil prayer. Yeah, and I really am going to, we're going to emphasize this in our conversation today, but um, I, I have become a very strong advocate of nighttime prayer, middle of the mm -hmm. night prayer, and I know you are as well, yes. Francis. We trade emails occasionally at that time. <laughs> and let me just say this, because I don't want to forget it. Um, I contend that we are never uh, 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 more true to ourselves than we are at three o'clock in the morning. When you lay awake at night in the darkness at three o'clock in the morning, you can hear every little sound uh, that might occur. You are your truest self, and there's a deep um, uh, spiritual lesson in that. Uh, but we're going to say more about nocturnal prayer, vigil prayer. The third principle is traveling in silence, less a means of navigation than a disposition of the heart. Yeah, there, there is a lot to be said about um, silence in Carmel. Obviously, our rule makes reference to silence. We'll quote that in a moment. Um, but uh, I will also advocate, Francis, I know we went through this book uh, by Cardinal Sarah on silence, and I can't say enough about the importance that that book, uh, the impact it had on me in terms of exploring the value, uh, the very serious nature of our call to silence. And of course, I'm talking principally about an interior silence, but it begins with an exterior silence. We need to find those times of silence. So we'll talk about that as well. 
So in order to be silent, we, we're going to learn to travel at night. I, I said that. Um, and we don't want to have things banging around in our heads or our hearts, these disruptors that Francis talked about, distractions. Flying monkeys. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the seriousness of what we do here on this conversation, um, I think, is um, adequately uh, sort of fleshed out by John in book two of The Ascent, chapter seven, actually. Here in John quotes Matthew seven fourteen regarding how narrow is the gate and constricting the way that leads to life, and few there are who find it. Those are John's words. Um, he's talking, of course, about Matthew's reference to the narrow gate, Jesus' own words about the narrow gate. John of the cross explains the Latin text, and he writes about this as both the beginning and the middle of the journey. Um, I'm going to let you take us through that. All right, Francis. this is what John the Cross tells us, and this is from Book 2, Chapter 20 of The Dark Night. He, Matthew that is, asserts that the way of perfection is constricting in order to teach that the journey along this way involves not only entering through the narrow gate, a void of sense objects, but also constricting oneself through dispossession and the removal of all obstacles in matters relating to the spiritual part of the soul. So this is John's classic model, right, of the active night of sense and the active night of spirit. And then, of course, uh, we do what we can to dispose ourselves to the Lord's work in the passive night of sense and in the passive night of spirit. And because we don't cooperate as well as we should, that John tells us, only a few number of souls reach this perfect love. Yeah, but he, we still can aspire. <laughs> he gives us a great challenge, but yes. he does lay it out. He says there are very few who will reach this in this life. Is right. To, to, to this clarify. is where we pl we beg God's mercy to help us. <laughs> yeah. Now, obviously, in a conversation like this, we can't hope to focus on everything. In future conversations, uh, Francis, maybe we'll pick up this theme. Uh, but what we really want to talk about today, and John, frankly, spends the vast majority of his time uh, in the Ascent of Mount Carmel, talking about this particular area, and that is the memory. The memory, of course, uh, is a strength of the soul that God has imparted to us, but it has to be purified. It has to be purified both uh, in, in a sense uh, uh, fashion, as John describes, and also in a spiritual fashion. And so um, we're going to focus our conversation exclusively on the memory using those three navigational techniques that Francis uh, talked us through a little bit earlier. And again, we'll elaborate on all three. I, I must say, this is not a journey through uh, Teresa's interior castles. Uh, there are certainly people who have written and spoken about that, and those are great sources if, if you're interested in understanding that. Um, instead, this is really uh, an acknowledgement of the spiritual journey that is often riddled with failure, sometimes discouragement and even disillusionment. Um, and we want to focus on what it is that distracts us uh, or, or gets us off course. And then we're going to explore uh, this theme by looking at our own uh, order and its founders, uh, the experience of St. Peter in a film that many of you may be familiar with called The Mission. Um, so we'll use those two sources, our own foundation as Carmelites and the, the film The Mission, uh, to, um, to flesh this out. Now, we'll also, uh, I will say, use a story that I, a little narrative that I sort of created around the history of the order. But um, I mentioned before uh, my biography, and I know I can say this uh, as truthfully for uh, Francis as myself, uh, our motivation in the spiritual journey is to come uh, into a full 
experience of love. Every thought, word, and deed that proceeds from the human person That's the transforming be, union. Yeah, should mm-hmm. be a manifestation of love that leads us to transforming union, spiritual marriage, uh, however you want to characterize it. But um, the, the motivation is love. We have to be transformed into love. Right. Um, and Teresa has something to say about this, actually. She says, perhaps we don't know what love is. I wouldn't be very surprised because it does not consist in great delight, but in desiring with strong determination to please God in everything. Well, there's another point about this matter of love that I think we need to be clear about. What is the greatest desire of the human heart? I know you've asked that in uh, some of our formation classes, Mark. What is the greatest desire of the human heart? And Most people say, (laughs) the the immediate reaction to that is always, and I've said it many times, people say, well, it's to be loved. It's to be loved. And I would contend that actually that is not the greatest desire of the human heart. That would put us in a perpetual state of childhood if all we want is sort of constant affirmation and constant love. In fact, I think what truthfully is the greatest desire of the human heart is that we want to become something. We want to be something as human persons. We strive our entire life uh, to do this. And what it is that we want to become actually is love. We don't know it. We don't define it well. We don't understand exactly how to get there. But to become a complete human person would be to fulfill the greatest uh, uh, aspiration that God instilled in our heart, and that is to become like him, to be the one in whose image we were created, and that is love. Um, I also want to suggest, though, that there's an interim step to this, um, and it's frankly where our uh, issues really begin in our desire to become love. In a wonderful book by Father George Maloney, maybe some of you are aware of him, he was actually a former Catholic priest that uh, then, uh, at the latter part of his life, became an Eastern Orthodox priest, Uh, but wonderful insights and understanding of spirituality, and a great uh, uh, devotion, by the way, to Carmelite spirituality. But in a book entitled Inward Stillness, he had a very compelling paragraph. I made slight modification to it, but I think it makes the point. Francis, I'd ask you to read that for us. After many years of ministry, I am more and more convinced that the one great sin in all of our lives is to live in the darkness and ignorance that prevent us from knowing, by an experience, that God truly loves us. This one root sin, man's loneliness, is what he seeks to extricate himself from by his continued demonstrations of power, all designed to extricate himself from his diminished condition. The things we do, called sins, are nothing but the manifestations of our desire to show others, and most especially ourselves, that we are worthy of being loved. So we want to become someone that we can love. We have to be able to look at ourselves and go, that is a human person worthy of love. The only way that that ever becomes true for us is for us to fulfill the mission, the the objective, if you will, for which we were created, and that is to image the perfect image of love, Jesus Christ. When we die, as St. Peter, uh, I'm sorry, St. Paul said, and and, uh, Christ then lives in us, we will, in fact, become someone we will find worthy of love uh, because we know then that God will find us that way. God loves us anyway, but we struggle with this understanding of our own diminished condition. 
Uh, put another way, from a work by a Benedictine monk in a, a wonderful text called Insinu Jesu, which is basically uh, in the bosom of the Lord, the Latin translation. Again, I'm referring to John on the night of the Last Supper, uh, reclining in the Lord's uh, bosom. This uh, monk uh, who ostensibly had a series of apparitions from our Lord, locutions actually, to be right. fair, um, wrote this in one of those locutions. Perfection is the, and this is from the Lord, from, from our um, What our Jesus is telling him. Exactly. Yes. Perfection, he says, is the fruit of friendship with me, not a precondition for it. You and many souls like you are confused about this. My friendship is not earned. It is not something acquired by measuring up to the standards of perfection that you've set for yourself. My friendship is pure gift. Wouldn't it be wonderful if everybody really understood that? There are, are so many striving on this journey that are trying to earn Christ's love rather than to let themselves be loved. Yeah, and they're trying to earn Christ's love. If we tie this together, Francis, with uh, Father Maloney's um, uh, brief paragraph, the, the idea is if I can just make myself perfect, if I can get rid of all the things, all the faults, all the memories that seem to assault me, with regard to my past, or even in, in many cases a current situation we may be struggling with, then I will be worthy of my own love, and that will make me worthy of God's love. And it's fundamentally upside down. The Lord says, your, uh, 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 my friendship with you uh, is not, or, or your perfection, rather, is not a precondition for my friendship. My friendship is what transforms you. It is when we know that in our current condition Christ loves us, that's when the transformation begins. It's the only time it begins. And then we slowly begin to acquire this image of Christ. We begin to love in a way that he does, and it is the love that ultimately heals us. So uh, I appreciate a bit challenging. We'll work through each of the details of this. Uh, but again, I want to emphasize that we're only going to discuss the memory here. So we won't be talking about faith as it relates to the purification of the intellect or the will as it relates to the purification of charity. But we are going to talk about hope as it relates to the purification of memory. This um, is well fleshed out in, in uh, St. John of the Cross. Now also, as we learn from Teresa, our journeys not to a physical geography. This is a spiritual interior journey. However, we should say something about what I characterize as the geography of holiness as it relates to the history of the Carmelite order. And I'm going to let you take over here, Francis, because you know this at least as well, <laughs> if not better than I do. Well, I, I like the way that you teach it, though. Um, our founders, uh, they were hermits and crusaders. They were motivated by the geography of the Holy Land. And, uh, and of course, they're thinking of the life of Christ, and there's Mount Carmel where Elijah uh trod and so the lay hermit is one who forgoes the traditional religious life and adopts a simple life of solitude and labor where they are allowed to follow an inner call to deep communion with God. In the Carmelite tradition according to Peter Thomas Rohrbeck's book um, Journey to Kareth, I hope you're familiar with that, if not I, I suggest uh, getting a hold of it and checking that out. There was a misinterpretation of the word hermit at that time. The Elijah tradition demanded that the hermit, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, periodically leave the solitary retreat for the precise business at hand. I, I think of Teresa of Avila having to leave the convent. Constantly, uh, to, right? <laughs> yeah, it's the Lord's call. Well, we Carmelites have been aptly described as apostolic 
contemplative. So uh, as a secular, I think that fleshes out um, more specifically because we can go to places where our um, enclosed Carmelite nuns cannot go. Uh, their love reaches every cell in every body throughout the world, but, but we can, as seculars, can physically go out into the world and do things that they can't. We can be apostolic. We are engaged in worldly activities. We are engaged in schools and in hospitals and uh, work in churches and uh, work in soup kitchens and all these uh, various activities, but we engage the world, and so that's our apostolic nature, and obviously we do it from a deep contemplative experience. Right, from our life of prayer. Exactly. And not just moments of prayer, but a living a life. State yes, prayer, yes, right? yes. Now, truthfully, relatively is known about the first monks. There's been a lot of speculation and a fair amount of writing about these first monks of Carmel. Um, but it is clear that they came, many of them, from Europe. They were seeking holiness in life, some of them only after their experience of participating in the Crusades. But there were also holy people that would trail along with the Crusades because they uh, knew of the uh, uh, geography of holiness, the, the reference to the Holy Land, and they wanted to live there. They wanted to reside there. So there was a, a combination of, of various uh, personalities, if you will, who ultimately resided <coughs> on Mount Carmel um, under or in the spirit of Elijah and eventually... Uh, we know they were given the rule by St. Albert of Jerusalem, and, and they became our, our forerunners for the order. But it's best, I think, if we sort of paint a picture of a potential character who may have been representative of some of these early monks. And I'm going to use the example, in this case, of one of the crusaders, uh, somebody who <clears throat> it is understood would have went, uh, gone, gone to the Holy Land rather on, uh, on uh, a crusade, with the intention of wresting back the sacred places from uh, the Muslims at that time, um, and um, eventually, as we'll discover, uh, has an encounter. And so, uh, in this particular case, let's imagine in um, a courtyard of, uh, of a small uh, village, we encounter a, a crusader, and he himself um, just having come off the battlefield, not even having had time to <coughs> shed his, uh, his uh, Armor. military garb, if yeah. you will, uh, but is sitting at a table uh, drinking wine. This is not unusual. It would have happened back then. And he encounters a blind man. Uh, and the blind man, um, um, he, he discovers... Um, so our crusader is sitting at the table, sipping his wine, and he looks across the courtyard and he sees a monk. Um, this monk, um, as he's making his way out of the courtyard, first encounter, encounters a blind man. And he reaches into his, um, his uh, rather rough-hewn uh, garb and pulls out a loaf of bread and offers it to the blind man. Uh, next, he continues down, uh, this monk that is, <clears throat> and he comes across a lame individual. Um, he offers him... Uh, his outer covering. He notices that the lame man um, is uncovered and uh, night's beginning to fall, and so um, he offers him his uh, covering. And all of a sudden, children begin to gather around this uh, monk figure, uh, and they begin to watch him and uh, pointing at him and, and conversing about him. But um, ultimately, um, what this um, crusader who is witnessing this concludes in his own mind, um, having remembered 
his many days now on the battlefield, uh, taking the life of his enemy and shedding blood and, and uh, encountering uh, so much violence and, and the darker side of, of human uh, encounters, he, he begins to think to himself, in my own words now, that though he has been le- leading a, a finite march of death, this monk seems to be leading, in the children that are following him, a perpetual procession of life. And so this man, um, who has uh, been witnessing this now, uh, begins to follow the monk uh, out into um, the uh, surrounding countryside, and he um, watches as he begins to ascend. We now know that this would be Mount Carmel. And the monk, somewhat in arrears, follows him and traces him down uh, into the, um, the uh, cave dwelling where uh, the monk and others like him have taken up residence on Mount Carmel. So our crusader is, is very taken by this monk, and as he wanders on the outskirts of the area of the caves uh, where the, he and other monks are dwelling, and he sees the fire, um, he watches as the monk, uh, before doing anything else, uh, washes his hands and then proceeds to the cross that's in the middle of this um, area and kneels down, bows his head, and begins to pray. The crusader then... Um, begins to feel in his deep interior uh, the woundedness of his own life and the brokenness of what it is that he came to the Holy Land to do and what he's ended up doing with his life, which is, of course, taking other lives. And so in an effort to sort of uh, cleanse himself, he walks over and thrusts himself into a creek that's not far away from the the fire and the the, um, area where the monk is kneeling. And washing some of the blood and some of the, the dirt off of his uh, breastplate and his helmet and his own arms and legs, he then stands up and walks towards the center of the camp, the encampment where the various caves are. And as he does this, he all of a sudden drops his shield. And again, what's happening here is the beginning of a transformation in his interior, having watched, as I said, this uh, finite march of death that he's been on in comparison to the perpetual procession of life that he's just watched the monk play out. He then uh, reaches down and undoes uh, his shoes, the the metal that covers his his feet so that they would not be uh, subject to an enemy attack. Eventually, he unclasps his actual breastplate, which covers uh, his entire uh, torso, and he lets that fall Uh, to the ground beside him. And he's walking slowly now as he's doing this, uh, dismissing and dispensing with all of this uh, military garb. He's walking slowly towards the monk, who all of a sudden looks up and realizes the man has entered the camp. Without any sense of trepidation or fear, the monk simply watches the crusader, who finally, as he gets within just feet of the uh, monk, uh, drops to his knees, drops his head, and simply begins to heave in weeping and abandonment. He realizes uh, now he's come into the presence of holiness, something he had not um, expected, nor has he ever encountered. And at a last moment, finally, he unleashes uh, the uh, handle of the sword and lets it drop beside him. Now, this man um, has not abandoned the battlefield. In fact, what he's chosen 
is to fight his future battles within his own human soul. But in order for him to do this, he knew as his last act, it would be necessary for him to lay down his earthly sword. And I draw this analogy because this is quite likely representative of one of those crusaders who may well have left the battlefield of the world, something he thought was an admirable pursuit uh, for what he now understands in a very brief story, I appreciate, but what he now has come to understand is the real battlefield, and that's the battle for the human soul. And I want to emphasize the importance of um, what is happening here by drawing from Paul's letter uh, to Ephesians. Yes, this is from Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Yeah, and I also want to emphasize here the importance of the sword. Uh, we know that the word sword is used, I think, Francis, over 700 times in Scripture. I remember researching it one time. I think oh, I'm right. Wow. Um, and so it, it, it begs the question, well, what is the significance of swords? Not just the historical, obviously, uh, it was the, the weapon of choice. But what's the metaphor for swords? Well, I want to suggest that the metaphor is actually our identity. Uh, they are, in fact, our strengths, our gifts, our attributes, our biblical talents, if you will. The crusader laid down the very thing that was both his defense, his greatest defense against his enemy, and that with which he overcame his enemy, and that's his sword. So the, the analogy to the sword is far greater than a metal uh, instrument that is used in this combat. If it's we're going to change the battlefield, we have to understand what sword we're going to be using on the new battlefield. So if you think of the sword as him laying down himself, prostrating uh, to the ground, you know, uh, this humility, what a beautiful analogy. Yeah, and in fact, Father Maloney, picking up on what Francis read earlier, these strengths, these gifts, these attributes that I just mentioned as analogous to the sword, they're really, in Father Maloney's words, the manifestation of our desire to show others, and most especially ourselves, that we are worthy of being loved. That's what the weapon of choice would have been for the crusader. Let me show you my strength. Let me show you my ability to overcome. Let me conquer my enemies with this. And it is exactly as Father Maloney said, our desire to show others, most especially ourselves, we are worthy of consideration. We are worthy of love. Initially and inevitably, we're going to have to transfer uh, to these spiritual pursuits, uh, but until God purifies us of them, um, they're going to still have this sort of worldly manifestation. The crusader in our story is beginning this process. This was exactly the spiritual work of the hermit, the prayerful, we mentioned the word solitary figure, offering himself to God and to the world. Both the hermit and the crusader are necessary within the human person if we want to follow Teresa. I'll explain that in greater detail as we go through. But the crusader spirit still rests with us as Carmelites. I don't want us to think that we've abandoned that idea of the crusader spirit. We simply changed the battlefield, and we've changed the, the weapons that we use. And I, again, I want to emphasize this single word, solitary. Uh, and we need to explain that a little bit. I think, and flesh that out. Well, in Egypt and Syria, there were men and women known as solitary or single ones. They were not married. And according to Elizabeth of the Trinity, she says, the divine being lives in an eternal, immense solitude. So to be a hermit, then, um, we must allow, in her words, 
If all the movements proceeding from the four passions, joy, hope, sorrow, and fear, are not perfectly directed to God, I will not be a solitary. This is how she is speaking about it. Yeah, what she's saying is those four passions, which we're very familiar with from Thomas Aquinas and John John of the Cross Cross, and many of the (laughs) the, uh, uh, great theologians use this uh, same four uh, passion analogy. If they are not perfectly aligned singularly to the will of God, then I will not be a solitary. That's what Elizabeth means by a solitary. We Carmelites are called to this solitary life, maintaining our hopes, our joys, our fears, and our sorrows solely in God. What does that mean? We hope to please God. We receive joy only by doing that. We fear not to do his will, and we experience sorrow when we understand that we have failed to do his will. This is accomplished in the original rule from 1209 uh, with this uh, one sentence. Each one is to remain alone in their cells or near them, meditating on the Lord's law day and night and keeping watch in prayer unless attending to some other duty. So let's explore, the, again, these three means of navigation that Francis introduced us to earlier. I'll, I'll, I'll go through them uh, here one by one um, in the context of this state of solitude within the center of our souls. And the first of those that she mentioned is seeking the Eucharistic heart of Christ. Yes, so um, St. Teresa tells us, and this is in regard to adoration, I'm not asking you to do more than look at him. For who can keep you from turning the eyes of your soul toward this Lord, even if you do so for a moment? So for Teresa, representing Christ has more to do with becoming aware of his presence or becoming present to him. Him who never takes his eyes off us. She goes directly to the person of Christ in his humanity. And, and that is an idea that Father Kieran Kavanaugh would emphasize. And of course, Teresa, if you read her writings, you, you hear her say over and over, keep your eyes on Christ. The wisdom of that little phrase <laughs> is, is uh, astounding. And to put that into practice will, will really help one on this journey. So what is it that we find in this being present to Christ? We allow ourselves to abandon everything, including ourselves, to acquire confidence in and consolation from our loving Lord. In his book, The Power of Confidence, um, Father Conrad de Meester, he makes a rather compelling argument that the core of St. Therese of Lisieux's little way of spiritual childhood is confidence. In fact, he says, the one reality that bridged the gap between God and St. Therese's consciousness of her own incompleteness was confidence. It is defined as the core of spiritual childhood. Therese apparently doomed herself to failure. The more she loved, the more she saw herself far from the goal. Only the hope that God himself would make up for what is lacking in her love is what remained to her. In fact, I'm going to interject here. If you remember the story about um, Therese talking about having an eagle's heart, but but seeing all the eagles flying around her and feeling like she's that little bird, the little bird who's so helpless but has an eagle's heart. And um, so 
when we studied Therese, we learned more and more about her uh, finding that shorter path up this stairway of perfection because she's like, yes, I can, I can lift up my foot, but, you know, climbing those stairs is too hard for me, and those saints are too great for me, and yet God is giving me this desire, uh, this eagle's heart. And so then she comes up with the concept of the divine elevator, Jesus stooping down to lift us up. Yeah, and she goes on uh, in this book by uh, Conrad de Meeser. He, he quotes, The more one advances in the way of perfection, the more one sees the goal is still far off. And this is in Therese's own words now. And now I am simply resigned to seeing myself always imperfect, and in this I find my joy. And that's such a powerful statement. It takes us back, Francis, uh, to the very beginning of our conversation when we said this is not about us perfecting ourselves. It cannot be about uh, at some point, uh, uh, God takes over. And Therese, clearly in writing this, had reached that point where she understood God is taking over in the perfecting process. In your uh, um, analogy to the navigational uh, a tool of Eucharistic adoration, we find confidence and consolation, but we do so only because we see ourselves imperfect and know that it is not now our responsibility to perfect ourselves. Right, and when sh she saw herself imperfect and so little, so weak, who does God have to help the most? The weakest. So if we recognize our weakness, then we're not depending on ourselves. We're depending on God. And then he stoops down and lifts us up. And here she becomes the, one of the greatest saints in modern time. Um, I want to reference uh, back to the book Mark mentioned earlier in Sinu Yesu which is in the bosom of Jesus by the Benedictine monk. This is one of the things that Jesus spoke to this Benedictine monk. I want you to consult me in all things, even in those that seem most insignificant. I'm with you at every moment in every area of your life. My eyes are upon you and my heart is open, never again to be closed. Listen to me when you seek my counsel, and I will speak to your heart or reveal to you in some other way what is best for the glory of my Father and for the salvation of your soul and of the souls of the many whom I give you to influence, to encourage, and to console. Now, we're Carmelites, Francis, so we always look for validation of anything that we might uh, discover in uh, a locution or an apparition or what have you. Uh, in Scripture, John of the Cross right. teaches us this. And and I do want to say one of the other things I like so much about that book, Insinu Yesu, um, is the fact that the monk himself went through the laborious effort of continually referencing back Scripture verses that supported exactly what he contends Christ was sharing with him. So with regard to what you just shared, in Second Corinthians we read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all consolation, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we will be able to console those who are in any affliction with the consolation with which we ourselves are consoled by God. So again, we find direct reference to uh, what uh, the monk contends the Lord was sharing with him. Certainly nothing particularly new that are for, for those who are familiar with the scripture verse in this confidence and consolation we then begin to experience union and the lord says again to our uh, friend the monk 
I speak of union of the soul with her God, the realization of that for which she was created, and the fulfillment of her truest longings. We talked about this at the beginning. What is the greatest desire of the human heart? All of this you can read about, our Lord says, in the fourth gospel. For St. John, in resting his head upon my heart, was given an understanding of all these mysteries. He is the patron and the friend of all who seek perfect union with me, and through me with the Father and the Holy Spirit. So you mentioned Eucharistic adoration, Francis. I want to hand this back to you uh, to, to sort of capstone that comment. Well, our Eucharistic adoration should consummate in stillness and silence to hear and feel the heart of Christ. And we do that uh, by keeping our eyes on him. And this is just that loving gaze that, that we're talking about. And imagine a silence and a stillness within our adoration uh, so advanced that we might, if he were there, literally healed, hear the heart of Christ. We can imagine that John could hear and likely felt Christ's very heartbeat. That's where we want to get to in adoration. You know, I understand that for many of us still, if we're in a stage of uh, vocal prayer or meditation, um, at, at the early part of our spiritual journey, or even in the early part of an individual session of prayer, there is activity, the bouncing around of that stuff in the head that we talked about. Right. But we want to get to this area of stillness, of silence, that, um, to use Francis's analogy, we could literally hear our Lord's heartbeat in that uh, experience. And I just want to say, um, we shouldn't force that silence. Um, we should uh, prepare... Uh, dispose ourselves for it, and God calls and draws the soul into it. Um, and it, and I think it happens when we we have had enough meditation that we have um, some knowledge of the mysteries of Christ's life that that help us, so that with just a gaze, the fullness of it comes to our mind and our heart, but not in a series of words, but but just in a, in a in a whole big picture. Um, so uh, we do need to predispose ourselves for that. But um, some souls who practice this all the time, uh, they can get to that uh, silent place a lot quicker than others. Um, but, you know, we are who we are and we pray the way that we, we can, yeah. not the way we can. It's not forcing, but it is perseverance, isn't right, it? It's right. continually going back to prayer, especially in the times when it's dry, because oftentimes those are, in, are, are, are the moments we'll have the breakthrough. So this first navigational image we want to leave you with is resting our head on the bosom of Christ. We derive from that confidence and consolation. And what we are called to is this silent uh, uh, receptivity, if you will, uh, to what the Lord might have to say. The second navigational um, uh, technique, if you will, that we talked about is prayer and what I call prayer in the night of the Garden of Good and Evil. And there's no reference to the movie here, if you're familiar with the movie. Uh, but it will come up later in, in uh, actually a future conversation. We'll circle back to this. But um, simply prayer in the night, which we talked about earlier, um, nocturnal prayer or prayer vigils in the middle of the night. We can't emphasize enough the importance of that. I said you'll never be more true to yourself than you are at 3 o'clock in the morning, uh, but we're going to discover there are other reasons for it, not the least of which our own St. John of the Cross and the Ascent encourages us uh, to seek this. He says prayer should be made in a solitary that's regarding with regard to the four passions uh, that uh, okay. Elizabeth talked about. So prayer should be made in a solitary wilderness, and at the best and most quiet time of night, 
as Jesus did. And that's exactly what John of the Cross is saying. And that we're going to say, we pray at night because Jesus prayed at night. And we're going to discover the risk of not praying at night. But, you know, there's another biblical reference for this, uh, Francis. Yes, that's from uh, Luke chapter 6, verse 12. It was at this time that Jesus went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. I've often asked people who I do spiritual direction with, I'll, I'll say, you know, have you ever spent a night in prayer? And, of course, <laughs> the answer inevitably is no. I've spent uh, lengthy <laughs> hours in prayer, but they were usually in the moments of fear and frustration. But can you imagine just sometime try spending a whole night in prayer, and then don't go to sleep, but get up and go through your yeah. next day. Well, and See, some people, it seems like they get a special call at three o'clock in the morning and i will say well, well that's a sign of divine mercy and you know we really um, need to answer that call to prayer at that time but you know some of those people i talk to about uh, uh, nighttime prayer they'll, they'll say to me are we really called to nighttime prayer i mean i'm a carmelite so i'm called to prayer but am i really expected to pray at night i think well, they should talk to saint louis um uh, therese's father because he w- he was a very uh, big advocate of the night vigils Well, there's an even more uh, deliberate reference to us as Carmelites, and it comes actually right from our rule. And it says in our rule, each one is to remain alone in their cells or near them, meditating on the Lord's law day and night and keeping watch in prayer and thus attending to some other duty. Now, we mentioned at the early part of the conversation here today, Francis, Cardinal Sarah's wonderful book. I think it's been out a little over a year now, maybe as many as two years. The Power of Silence, that's the the, um, main title. And in this, he writes, In his final hours, nocturnal silence is Christ's companion. The faithful, he's referring to us now, listener, the faithful must get used to praying at night like Jesus. God carries out his works in the night. In the night, all movement is transformed and grows by God's strength. That's what I mean when I say, and I've said it now, I think this will be the third time. Um, We are never more true to ourselves, and we will be at 3 o'clock in the morning because that's when God really has access to our soul. There are very few distractions in the middle of the night, but we are almost sort of, uh, you know, uh, made available, if you will, in a way that we wouldn't otherwise be. Uh, throughout the course of the day. Now, we certainly can achieve that in adoration. But laying in bed, if you choose to do that, it's fine. Uh, Getting up and going to a quiet room in the night. But I would encourage, keep the lights off, keep it quiet, and and see what God might reveal to you. Yeah, I think of night and mystery together. Yeah. Well, in fact, uh, uh, we know that light has a tendency to bring about action and activity. Night inherently brings about passivity. That's when we sleep. And intimacy as well. So, you know, it's only night that reveals the embrace of the inner light. So, um, you know, it's a good time to make an examination of conscience, you know, at night, because um, it has a remarkable uh, revealing and healing effect, as you, I'm sure you've experienced. Yeah, and this and is I what I mean experienced. when I say, uh, you know, it's great to make your examination of conscience at 10 or 11, whenever you happen to go to bed. But if you happen to wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning, try doing your examination of conscience then. <laughs> it will be very revealing, but it will also be healing. This isn't meant yeah, to be right. uh, difficult. This, this is the truth of who we are. We must be willing to go out in the night if we hope to find, as John would say, our bridegroom. Um, in fact, in the Dark Night, Book 3, Chapter 24, John says, Persons who refuse to go out at night and search for the beloved and to divest and mortify their will but rather seek the beloved in their own bed in comfort, as did the bride, will not succeed in finding him. He's referencing, by the way, Song of Songs 3.1. 
As this soul declares, she found him when she departed in darkness and with longings of love. So John himself, referencing the Song of Songs, tells us, um, go and seek our beloved in night. In fact, the, the verse he drew from in the Song of Songs reads this way. Upon my bed at night I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. Now, he's not referring to laying in the bed. He's referring to sort of a lethargy about our nighttime prayer in general. Um, and again, what, what we encourage is um, not only this idea of nighttime prayer, but looking at ourselves in the darkness, in the silence of the night, for an interior revelation of our true selves and seeking an interior healing of what it is within us that needs to be healed. Right, because if you're not aware of, of what the mess is or what's broken, um, then it's hard to have the healing. So it, it's good to have the light shine, and then the Holy Spirit brings the healing. Well, the last one we want to uh, focus on, the remember the three navigational techniques now, Eucharistic adoration, praying at night, those are two of the, of the three, and the third one is silence. Now, again, I want to emphasize we're talking about silence of the memory, but right off, our Carmelite rule emphasizes the importance of silence for us. In silence and hope will be your strength. So I think this is um, a little a quote from Kierkegaard. Kier Kierkegaard, yeah. Yeah. Um, he said, and, and, and it applies to this um, silence, if I were a physician and if I were allowed to prescribe just one remedy for all the ills of the modern world— I would prescribe silence. For even if the word of God were proclaimed in the modern world, how could one hear it with so much noise? Therefore, create silence. Boy, I would like everybody in the world to hear that <laughs> because we have so much noise. Oh, and, my gosh. And Isn't I think our, our, our cell phones uh, have really... Um, distorted and taken away our silence cell phones and iphones and ipads and tweets and twitters and twats and all that <laughs> other crazy stuff that people get involved in you know it's interesting thomas merton said something very similar of course thomas merton would have been writing i would imagine this was the 50s maybe as late right. as the 60s but he says christians should have quiet homes throw out the television he was certainly familiar with that if necessary of course, he says, not everyone, and he's being a little tongue-in-cheek here. He says, of course, not everyone, only those who take this sort of thing seriously. <laughs> I wonder what he'd think about now with our cable and satellite TVs and yeah. 100 stations. You can well imagine <laughs> Thomas Merton raising his eyebrows, lowering his, his, his uh, gaze, and then raising his eyebrows and saying, only those who take this sort of thing seriously. Yeah. But, you know, I'll tell you, I have said to an audience uh, on many occasions, um, all right, do you think that I'm suggesting that you should turn off your radios and your televisions and get rid of your iPhones and get rid of your, you know, multiple so sources of social media? Do you think that's what I'm saying? And I get blank stares and I'll hesitate for a moment. I'll go, yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> I'm not kidding. This is what we need to do. Well, you know, so many people like uh, when they're driving along, they they feel like they have to have the radio on. They have to be entertained. They have. It's like uh, people in this day and age constantly have to be stimulated yeah. with music or words or, you know, things. We, it's, we fear silence almost. And I tell you, yes. the reason we fear it is because we know it allows the revelation of what may be going on in the interior. Mm. And that's what we want to focus on here. Very good point. This is not the absence of noise. Silence that we're talking about isn't just the absence of noise, I guess I would emphasize. It's silence of the memory. 
which leads to silence of the heart. I want to just say too quickly, Francis, we understand memory in this context, in a spiritual context, um, as an attribute of the will, is not a series of mental pictures that we may have acquired throughout the course of our life. Your memory is actually who you are sitting right here today. It is every event, every circumstance, every image that resides both in the conscious and subconscious uh, recesses of your mind and has really, in large measure, created you into the person you are today. That's memory. And we operate on memory. It has to be purified. It has to be healed. And that's what this a particular conversation is about. So silence of the memory leads to silence of the heart. Um, and what happens is that we struggle oftentimes in our memory with one of two things, uh, four things, actually with either regret or recovery or fear or favor. What do I mean by that? We regret elements of our past that we wish we had not been involved in or things we'd prefer not to have done. Or there are aspects of the past that we'd like to recover because they were particularly favorable to us. They were good. They were wonderful experiences. Conversely, as it relates to the future, and the future is tied up in the memory. Remember, the memory is purified through the virtue of hope which has to do with the future. And in the future, we have one of two dispositions. One is fear. I fear what's going to happen. Or I favor certain things that might happen. All of that stems from the memory. And John tells us, as do um, uh, the great theologians, if we don't purify the memory, we will not be freed of regret and the desire for recovery or fear and favor for certain things that we want to have happen. There's a, a challenge in favoring certain things, and it may be that that's not God's direction. And if we uh, become too attached to a future uh, favorable circumstance, uh, we're going to get off course. And that's what this, again, is all about. So John of the Cross addresses this. I think it's three kinds of evil he's addressing. Correct me if mm -hmm. I'm wrong. Yep. Okay, so this is from the, um, the book of the Ascent. It's book three, and I'm quoting John here. The first, coming from the world, what happens and what people say, involves subjection to many evils arising from this knowledge and reflection of the memory. The second is from the devil. All the greatest delusions and evils the devil produces in the soul enter through the ideas and discursive acts of the memory. And the third kind of evil is engendered by the natural apprehensions. We observe that as often as people begin to think about some matter, they are moved and aroused over it. If the apprehension is bothersome and annoying, they feel sadness or hatred. If agreeable, they experience desire and joy. Thus, they will sometimes be joyful and at other times sad. Now they will feel hatred, now love. They are unable to persevere in equanimity. So I like this. This spiritual equanimity is so important on this journey. In all of it. What, what Francis just outlined for us, by the way, drawing from John of the Cross, his own writings, are um, the three impediments to our entry into the interiority or the interior life, and that is uh, the world, the devil, and ourself. Right? That's exactly what John has just laid out for us here. The world will assault us. The devil will assault us. And we ourselves will become uh, our own worst enemy. But what is the source of all this, uh, you know, churning? It's the memory. Cardinal Sierra, again, going back to his book on silence, says, A proliferation of words, and we can include in this thoughts that, that are represented, obviously, in words for us. A proliferation of words brings with them the temptation of the golden calf. What does this mean? Yeah, really. Cardinal what does Sarah, that mean? 
<laughs> he, he's explaining that we are constantly trying to make meaning of our life. We are taking all of the circumstances, we combine them with everything that we've experienced, the memory, and we try to make meaning out of our life. We try to be somebody, right? Cardinal, uh, uh, Father Maloney said, we want to be something. What it is that we want to be, whether we know it or not, is love. But we take all of these experiences and the influences of the world, the devil, and ourselves, and we try to make meaning. In the creation of the golden calf, the ancient Israelites were trying to make meaning of what was happening to them. They'd been taken out into the desert. Moses was up on the mountain. They didn't really know what was going on. They knew they hungered and thirsted for what they had left, slavery back in Egypt. And so that resulted in their uh, desire to create for themselves their own future. Remember what we said. We, in the absence of guidance from the Lord, which we should seek in interior prayer, will create our own future. And that's exactly what they did. They created their own image of God. This is what we think God's going to look like. Whether we think that's true or not doesn't matter. We're going to create our own image because we don't have sufficient uh, input from God to give us the guidance as to what it is we need. They, they weren't practicing contemplation. They were living exclusively in their exterior kingdom. So making meaning uh, from all of the sources, the world, the devil, and ourselves, resonant in the memory. Now, John of the Cross on this issue of silence says, it is better to learn silence and quiet the faculties so that God may speak, which is what we just said. For in this state, the natural operations fade from sight. This is realized when the soul arrives at solitude. Remember our definition of solitude. Joy, hope, fear, and sorrow all become focused on God exclusively. Solitude in the faculties, he says. But if we do not use the faculties, then what do we use to understand or to make meaning out of our life? Well, here's an explanation in Christ's own words that he gave to the Benedictine um, monk in the book Insinu Jesu. He said, learn what it means to be hidden, solitary. It is to be free of preoccupations with yourself, with the opinion of others, with what the world may say of you or of me. And didn't he then just unravel exactly what John of the Cross said? <laughs> right. Stop being preoccupied with yourself. Stop being worried about the opinion of others, which includes Satan. And stop being worried about the world and what they say of you. This is exactly from John of the Cross. And he goes on, it is to live for me alone, even as I live for the Father. So if you're on a journey, well, who do you want to get directions from? God or some madman on the road or flying monkey? St. <laughs> <laughs> Teresa of Avila says, pay no more attention to the memory than one would a madman. Yeah, God rather speaks to us in that silence where we are listening for language that's derived from our memory. And this is done with the objective of trying to free ourselves from our own diminished condition. Again, using Father Maloney's words. So we have this diminished condition. All right, to build on this theme of silence, um, there's an interesting story, actually. Uh, Francis, you'd be as familiar with this as I would because of your background in music. Uh, I know you're familiar with the 1952 American composer John Cage introducing in 1952 uh, a symphony which he referred to as the Silent Symphony. Um, you listen, the audience that is, listens in complete and total silence for four minutes and 33 seconds. You know what? <laughs> this actually happened when I was <coughs> getting my degree in music. Oh, really? So <laughs> I remember this specifically. <laughs> and you're like, okay, well, what's the point? Well, the point was the music was whatever happened 
during that four minutes and 33 seconds, like somebody coughed, somebody sneezed, you know, like the phone <laughs> it's yeah. ringing just then. <laughs> well, I, I want you to keep that analogy of the silent symphony and then think about this. Uh, there's actually also in, in musical circles a wonderful violinist, arguably the greatest violinist in the world right now, um, at, by the name of Joshua Bell. And uh, I don't know if you've ever seen Joshua Bell or seen him in concert. I've actually watched him uh, on a video. I've never been in concert with him. But um, Joshua Bell has a profound grasp of his instrument and of the music that he plays. Um, and the interesting thing is that when Joshua Bell plays, uh, I am absolutely convinced that he, if you've seen him, um, does not need to see the music. He knows the music. He knows the score. Um, and much like Joshua knows the notes of the, uh, of the music, um, we um, don't need to be living our, our prayer life with a whole bunch of words. Mm -hmm. We don't need to focus on that. The instrument, which is our heart in prayer, should begin to get to a place where it can play the music, and I'm going to now refer again to um, Josh, J John Cage's silent music uh, with our heart without the use of words, as Joshua Bell can play his uh, music without looking at the notes. I, I have to interject <coughs> here. It's, it's as if um, the musician is living the notes yeah you know they're they're not reading them they're they're performing them so it, it's live and I, I always think that um you know i saint elizabeth of the trinity she was a musician and uh i think that uh her excellence in music which she was well known f for playing on the piano um helped her to transcend um just as a musician transcends the notes on the page by living the music, by performing it, uh, so do we in prayer, when we pray from the heart, transcend um, the, the words and, and we go beyond it. And the silence most encapsulates what is in that heart. Well, and beyond that, the, the notes <coughs> make up for a musician the score, right? The, the full score. Uh, much like our words make up our thoughts. Thoughts are a compilation of words. And if we're going to go beyond that, um, I am absolutely convinced that when Joshua Bell plays music, he hears music that we as the audience don't hear. It's coming from within him. He creates it, he shares it with us, but he hears things that we can't even hear. And so the invitation then is um, the silent heart makes music that only the heart of God is able to hear. And likewise, God makes music for us that only we can hear if we will enter into the silence, dispensing with words, dispensing with thoughts. I'm explaining contemplation now. And the truth is we all have this gift. We just don't exercise it. We don't move into this place of silence. I like this quote by St. Elizabeth of the Trinity um, regarding this. She says, A praise of glory is a soul of silence that remains like a lyre under the mysterious touch of the Holy Spirit so that he may draw from it divine harmonies. Yeah, so the analogy <laughs> is wonderful, isn't it? The Lord plays the instrument. Of course, he doesn't need our words. He doesn't need our thoughts. He's the one who evokes from our soul this silent music, these divine harmonies. The tranquil night at the approaches of the dawn, the silent music, the murmuring solitude, the supper that revives and enkindles love, the language the Lord hears best is silent love. Of course, that's directly from John of the Cross. So our navigational 
uh, image here of silence is silent music. And what it leads to is this deep interior listening. So this process is not a one-time event, but is a continuing series of dispossessions, painful mini-deaths along our pilgrimage, death that comes from the memory, the perception, the expectation, and the decision. Yeah, we should emphasize these three means of navigation that we've talked about, resting in the bosom of the Lord, embracing him in the night, vigils, and silencing of the faculties, and listening interiorly are all what allow us to stay on course. Now, we've expired our hour. In fact, we've gone a little <laughs> beyond it, Francis. I hope our listeners don't mind. But, but we I, have more to talk about, don't on we? On this so? topic, we have a great deal more to talk about. In fact, when we meet with you next or, or uh, have our next conversation, we're going to show through Peter's personal experience with Jesus Christ, each of these three navigational uh, uh, means, if you will, and how Peter kind of got himself off course and what he does to get himself back on course. So that'll be our next conversation. Okay, and I'm looking forward to that, Mark. And so I have a closing prayer. Um, it's a very short one, but it's from St. John of the Cross that I think applies to our conversation. So let us get recollected and look for Jesus within. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let your divinity shine on my intellect by giving it divine knowledge, and on my will, by imparting to it the divine love, and on my memory, with the divine possession of glory. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Spirit. Amen. We'll look forward to being back with you again very soon. God bless.